Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer at large in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor at China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Thursday, the 16th of June. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, Angela Merkel is back. What I asked myself, of course, is what might have been missed. Could more have been done to prevent such a tragedy? I think this situation is already a great tragedy. Could this have been prevented? What message did she have? And how does her own legacy on Russia and Ukraine hold up? Then we turn to a Russian leader from centuries ago, Peter the Great. What inspiration is Russian President Vladimir Putin drawing from his 18th century predecessor? Peter the Great had fought the Great Northern War for 21 years. It seemed he was at war with Sweden. He took something from them. He did not take anything from them. He returned what was Russia's. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. Your ears have not deceived you. It is the prodigal writer of this podcast, <laughs> Returned Home. Jeremy, welcome back on it's the New good. Statesman World Review. Good to be back. Thank you for letting me back on. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we had to let you back on because we are about to discuss the following. Last week, six months after she left office, former German Chancellor Angela Merkel appeared in conversation to discuss how she has spent the last half year and to reflect on present politics. Given the Russian war in Ukraine, her own reflections on the policies she pursued with Moscow take on particular salience. Jeremy, what did you make, first of all, of her appearance more generally, but specifically, you know, we've talked about on this podcast, you've written about whether the Russian war in Ukraine will sort of make us rethink Merkel's legacy. What were your thoughts watching and listening to her? Yeah, my general view, as discussed previously, has been that the Russian war in Ukraine will 
cast her foreign policy legacy in a more negative light. And this appearance didn't do much to change my analysis, but it did add some depth to what we know about how she sees this. Um, She was appearing on stage here in Berlin on the 7th of June, so last week, in a kind of in conversation with event with a it's fair to say, relatively sympathetic journalist. Um, And they talked, first of all, a bit about what she'd done since she left office. We discovered that she had been going on freezing walks on the Baltic Sea coast of Germany, listening to an audiobook of Macbeth, which was just great copy for us journalists and 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 an interesting image. And as I say in the piece I wrote about this, it did remind us of those aspects of Merkel that people did sort of admire and value. She is this kind of thoughtful erudite, uh, humble character. But then the conversation got on to the war in Ukraine. And I think that also then reminded us of the things that uh, are less positive about her legacy, particularly her policy on Russia. And the interesting thing there was, I mean, I wondered if she might acknowledge some of the ways in which recent events have, have cast her policies in a more negative light. And actually, you know, when politicians are sometimes asked about a mistake they've made and they say, I won't apologize for, and then they say something else, or then they say something yeah. that's not quite what they were actually asked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her take was essentially, I will not apologize for exactly what I'm being asked about here, which is my, my policy on Russia. She was defiant. She, she explicitly said, I will not apologize, which isn't to say that she didn't express solidarity with Ukraine. She said, my heart is with Ukraine. She said the war was in no way justified. And she characterized her own take on Putin as having been consistent consistently open-eyed to his potential for this sort of action, uh, his potential to uh, destabilize the European security order. But the interesting thing was, you know, she, she, she kind of dwelled on the conversation dwelled on two particular points, her decision alongside others to stall Ukraine's membership of NATO in 2008, and then her role in the Minsk Accords in 2014-2015, which made perhaps concessions to Russia that in retrospect were not wise. Um, And she was totally defiant that she did those for the right reasons, and argued that by doing so, she'd effectively allowed Ukraine time to develop and to prepare for the sort of attack that it experienced this year, which I think is not a totally implausible argument in that Ukraine did come on a long way between 2014 and uh, the start of this year. But where, and I go into more detail about this in the piece, where I think the argument falls apart is that if this was about buying time, if she really did see that Putin could do something like this, she didn't then act that way since 20, 2014. She didn't act to um, help arm Ukraine. She didn't act to reduce Germany's energy dependence on Russia. She didn't act to reduce his other forms of leverage over Eastern Europe and indeed the West. So that was my central take on it, that that, that her, her sort of self-justification, which I think is sincere, I don't think this was some sort of facade, I don't think it adds up, essentially, as, as, as sort of thoughtful as it is. I, I just want to follow up on, on Germany's energy dependence, because she was particularly adamant while she was chancellor that Germany's energy policy and its economic policy were distinct from geopolitics and that Nord Stream 2 was an economic project, not a political project. Um, I mean, was there anything at this at this talk that offered explanation or clarity or any attempt to sort of reconcile that with the present state of things? Not really. You know, she she painted herself as someone who knew Putin. She talked about, for example, the fact that she speaks Russian, he speaks German. She she made the observation that his German was better than her Russian. Actually, having heard his German, I'm not convinced that's the case. Perhaps that was that was Merkelian modesty. But anyway, she made this whole thing about how I know Putin, I've talked to him. She she said that, you know, she recognized his what she she called his fine shaft, which is translated into English as 
uh, hostility, but it's actually, it's sort of stronger than that. It literally means enemyship. She recognized his character as that of an enemy of what she stands for and what the West stands for, which, as you say, is quite hard to square with her energy policies. And the, the way I reconcile this in the piece and more generally is... I've long taken the view that Merkelism is extremely historically deterministic. She really dwells on the lessons of the past, but not in a way that is about how do we grasp the forces of history and shape them and channel them, but is very much about kind of being humble before them and sort of accepting them, letting the wind blow us wherever it will. And that came across very strongly in her her take last week, you know, the sense was, I think, that she felt that she'd done everything she could. She said it's always worth trying diplomacy, even if it doesn't work. But essentially, she's saying it couldn't have been stopped, it couldn't have been prevented. And I, I see that as an expression of that determinism, which I think did mark her chancellorship and will cause history to view it in a much more negative light than a more activist chancellorship would have been. To follow up on that, Jeremy, I remember you writing um, what now strikes me as extraordinarily prescient, I'm sure in, in common with, with all of your other writing, but when she had first stepped down and you wrote about how one's legacy is not necessarily able to be judged at that point, that it's not at the end of the chancellorship that you can determine what Merkel's legacy will be, but rather that that process unfolds over years, perhaps even decades to come. Do you feel we are watching that process in real time now as history unfolds beyond Chancellor Merkel? Is also her legacy changing and would we view her quite differently if we wrote the stories about her chancellorship now and perhaps even more so you know, in the years to come? I will accept the praise for that prescience, but only because it wasn't really me who came up with that argument. It was I was effectively quoting Tim, the historian Timothy Garden Ash, who who made the point to me when I was I was interviewing him for my my profile of Merkel, and he said exactly that 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 you can't necessarily judge the legacy of a leader on the day that they leave office. You know, quite often it takes a longer time for history. History goes to show what their legacy really was. And that was more or less where I came down in the profile I wrote of her last September. I talked about the things that I thought she'd done right. I talked about the things she'd done wrong. It was already clear that her Russia policy was in the second of those categories. But I basically came down on the view that she certainly hadn't been a great chancellor. I don't think, I think it was already clear that she wouldn't belong alongside Adenauer and Willy Brandt and, and Helmut Kohl. My view was sort of whether history would see her as an on-balance bad or an on-balance good chancellor would depend on events since. And that's exactly what's happened. And I've thought often about Timothy's point about that in the last few months. If her caution and her deterministic approach had put Europe and Germany on the path to a a more stable relationship with Russia and, and and greater peace and unity, then we would, of course, see her, her legacy in a different light now, but the very opposite has happened. And of course, history is still unfolding every day, every week, uh, particularly where, where the Russian war in Ukraine is concerned. And I think there we come onto this question about what her successor as Chancellor Olaf Scholz is doing and his government. And a sort of a way to look at their government, particularly early on, was that they were in some ways better equipped to correct the things that Merkel's governments had got wrong. In fact, I was looking back, there was a, a newspaper headline that described Schultz as the better Merkel earlier this year on the grounds that he had some similar personal characteristics, but that his government had a more activist view of domestic and foreign policy and was more, more willing to try and shape events. Now, we could talk separately about German domestic policy, which is, of course, a different a different topic. But on the foreign policy front, 
Certainly since that famous Zeitenwender speech, the, this turning point speech that Scholz gave just days after the first invasion, he has, I think, cleaved more closely to the Merkelian view of things, which is that these are these overwhelming forces that you can't necessarily control. And the best you can try and do is limit damage and, you know, in this case, push the two sides to the negotiating table, which is actually relatively close to what Merkel, I think, would have probably done in the same place. So, um, you know, her legacy is evolving in, in step with Germany's wider response to this. But personally, I would have liked to see a greater rupture where foreign policy is concerned mm-hmm. from the new government. Well, we will drop the link to the aforementioned piece of Jeremy's in the show notes. But right now, we are going to move across Europe and back in time. Yes, that's right. Speaking last week on the 9th of June, Putin said, quote, Peter the Great waged the Great Northern War, meaning against Sweden, for 21 years. End quote. Russia at that time was not taking land from Sweden, he said, but rather taking back what was rightfully Russia's. This, he said, is how it was. All right, this may possibly be more text than subtext, but nevertheless, Katie, why why is this this speech to what was it, scientists and engineers? Like why why is this relevant today? Yeah, to everyone who had Peter the Great on your World Review podcast bingo card, congratulations. Not many people would have seen that one coming. Um, the, the nominal occasion for this was the 350th anniversary of Peter the Great's birth. Putin toured an, an exhibition and then spoke to, to young engineers and scientists in, in Moscow. He is not a man who is known for the subtlety of his public comments, and he really spelled this out very explicitly. So he said, and he sort of, you know, to, to, to paint the picture, he was sort of leaning back in this overly stuffed armchair as he said this, kind of smiling to, to himself at uh, how clever his, his comments were. And he reflected on Peter the Great's legacy and how at the time people had said that after the Great Northern War that he had fought against Sweden, which lasted some 21 years, that the territory that they now controlled had been taken from Sweden and the territory on on which they built then the the new imperial capital, St. Petersburg, named after him. Um, He he said that other European powers felt that this land actually belonged to Sweden, but that is not how it was. They were, in fact, returning land that rightfully belonged to Russia. They were returning and reinforcing the Russian lands. And then in case case anyone had had missed his very subtle allegory, he, he said explicitly, clearly, it fell to us to return and reinforce as well. So what struck me about this is he could not be telling us more clearly who he is and how he sees power. And it is an 18th century concept of both power and national security. And I think following on from these comments, I would hope that we could retire forever the conversation about whether we should be careful about whether we humiliate Putin, that perhaps if we could just build him a a suitably appealing golden bridge to to retreat across, he would take it. Um, He is explicitly telling us, and he talked further in these comments about essentially you're either a sovereign or a colony. He made very clear that he does not view Ukraine as a sovereign state. When somebody repeatedly tells you they do not believe that Ukraine is a sovereign state, they compare themselves to an 18th century imperialist, we should believe that that is how he views the world and we should approach him on that basis. Final point on this, which is that I think when he mentioned Peter the Great, there was a lot of commentary along the lines of sort of, aha, but Peter the Great was the one who opened the window to Europe. He famously moved the capital to St. Petersburg, 
required the court to move there, to cut their beards short and to adopt um, European ways of life, whereas Putin is the guy who is slamming that window shut. I don't think there's any basis to believe that that's how he views Peter and his legacy, because yes, he did do that. He moved the capital to St. Petersburg, but prior to that, he fought this war for 21 years. He is the kind of ruler who had his own son tortured and murdered, and he built that great European-facing capital on on the bones of you know we still don't know how many, but potentially tens of thousands of the of the slave laborers who were required to build it. So I think it's entirely possible that when Putin looks at Peter and his legacy, he sees a ruler who you know yes did what were said at the time to be absolutely terrible things, but is remembered by history many centuries later as one of the greatest leaders that Russia has ever had. It's that basic principle of when someone tells you who they are, believe them. And I think back to the weeks before Trump became president, when there was this great debate as to whether we should take him seriously, but not literally, or seriously and literally. It's like, no, he is as bad as he says he is. And I think the same is true of Putin. And as you say, Katie, this is not exactly the first time we've had something like this from him. And the lesson is surely that he absolutely means this. This is not some sort of postmodern sort of posture or ironic trolling. This is exactly how he sees the world. I have a question for both of you. Why do you think that there is this reluctance on the part of some in the so-called West to believe him? He's pretty explicitly comparing himself to Peter the Great, not in like the modern sense, you know, and, and, and yet there are people still saying, well, we have to make sure that he doesn't feel too bad about this war that he started or, well, there's another way to interpret Peter the Great. Like, what is the hang up here from from hearing what he's saying and reading clearly the lessons of history that that he's spouting? I'd be fascinated to hear what Jeremy thinks about this from Berlin. My view is that because once we accept that, once we acknowledge who Putin is and and what he says he wants and how he sees the world, the consequences are, are, are devastating. You know, I think there is this real collective desire to just go back in time, to go back to, you know, January of this year when there was not a, a major devastating war in Europe, when tens of thousands of people were not being killed in Ukraine, and when we could go back to talking about ways to meet Russia's security concerns, ways to still be able to, to trade with Russia, to get oil and, and gas from Russia. Because what, once you accept truly who, who Putin is, those sorts of ideas start to seem preposterous and quite delusional. And that's a major rupture in the sort of, you know, what we have believed about Russia and its trajectory post-1991. And certainly, you know, from, from the start of Putin's rule in the early 2000s about the trajectory that it was heading in, you know, it is clear that that now is not where Russia is going. Um, So I think there is a real collective will just to delay acknowledging that and dealing with that and just, and to, and to really hope that there's some way just to make this stop, you know, get to a ceasefire in Ukraine, get back around a negotiating table and, and get back to the world pre-February 2022. Yeah. And in fact, I think that impulse is quite a powerful one. There's some new polling out today by the European Council on Foreign Relations, which taxonomizes views in different European countries on this. And they divide divide up populations into those who want essentially peace at a significant cost in justice, those who put justice over peace, and those who were sort of swing voters. And the, the division is 
as you'd expect, a more robust take in the eastern states than, than in western ones like France and Germany. But it's quite interesting that all populations are to some degree split along those lines. And I think that Putin's words should be pointing in the direction of the justice argument, which is which is to say that you have to stand by your principles on this because because there is not a stable peace to be had with a leader like this unchecked. But just one other kind of broader thought on this. I mean, I noticed that he specifically mentioned the 21 years of that war, which I wonder I wonder if that's an indication of how he sees this conflict as something that will play out over a long period of time. Obviously, there was this perception that Russia was knocked back in the first weeks and months of the war in Ukraine. But is this him saying also this is a long process. We're in this for the long haul. And just one final reflection, particularly kind of looking at the long term, I I too was struck by this division of the world into colonies and sovereign states, or even colonies and empires. It it does strike me that that's, that's the big problem for a Russian who takes this imperialistic point of view. When you look at their country's reliance on China, you know, this idea that the world is divided between great powers and lesser powers, well, the power relationship between Moscow and Beijing is, as you know better than I do, Katie, an unequal one and likely to become more unequal. So I, I see a tension between, I mean, obviously, there's a tension between Putin's view on this and reality. But there is also a particular tension between his his sort of imperialistic, nostalgic, revisionist worldview and the reality of his own relationship with China. I wonder to what extent that actually presents difficulties for those who do drink the Kool-Aid on this in, mm-hmm. in, in the Kremlin. It strikes me less necessarily in terms of the China-Russia relationship, because I think there is an acceptance on both sides that they need to make a real effort not to at least openly broadcast that the other is the junior partner. But where I think it could become really seriously consequential is if you take that view that you're either great power or colony, and you apply that to, for instance, some of the Central Asian states, um, those, those are areas where there could be a real contest between China and Russia for, you know, who is the overseeing power of the colony. It was the clearest statement yet of how he views the world and that he does view Ukraine as as effectively a colony that's up for grabs and it can either be controlled by the United States and Western hegemons or it can be controlled by Russia. Um, But yeah, I think you're right to pick up on the time frame too, that I think he was signaling, you know, this is a long-term systemic existential battle. This is not a short-term conflict that, that we're going to you know, resolve it and, and be able to move on from in a year or so. I was going to briefly throw a question to you, actually, Emily, which is, so by talking about this question of how long this is going to last, how long we need to think of this conflict as lasting, Biden wants to put all of this money into US support for Ukraine, as the, the famous $40 billion. Um, but do you think in, in, in practice, that's where the US policy is heading towards something where you're really digging in for a long-term battle to support Ukraine in defense of its sovereignty? I'm actually quite worried about this. There were reports this week that some administration officials were already saying, oh no, it looks like these sanctions might actually be hurting us and not just them, which was pretty predictable from the get-go that there would be some some impact felt by Americans, despite Biden's protestations at the beginning that no, no, you won't feel this at the pump, you know, you won't feel this when you go to buy gas. Personally, I do worry that domestic politics will mean that the United States, either under this administration or or, or the next administration, will not provide the commitment to Ukraine that, that it needs. I think the conversation on ammunition this week and Ukraine's lack thereof 
was pretty concerning. It goes to show why uh, dependence on oil and gas is a national security crisis. It also, I mean, the thing is, if you say, okay, well, we're tired of supporting this because we're paying too much for gas, then then don't bother talking about democracy or autocracy ever again, <laughs> really, yeah. because you're saying that there is a price to it and it's $5 a gallon. That's that's what you're saying. This, this actually almost kind of speaks to something that we were discussing in, in the, the, the Merkel section as well, which is, okay, Putin has his historical vision of the moment we're in. It might be deluded, it might be bloodthirsty, but he has a sense of where we are in history and where this all fits. In, where the West's concerned, there is no such vision, there is no such sense. You know, we, we see this in t- totally different historical ways between different countries. And there is also, it seems to me, very little debate about the kind of the place in history and the historical forces in, in action. And maybe this is how we should take Putin's comments, that he has a, a historical theory, he has a historical view, what's ours. And, you know, until we have that, you're not going to get a coherent Western response, particularly if this ends up being as long term as he's suggesting. I think, and this is the last thing I would say on this, that I think that Putin is imagining the return of something that's already been, whereas what we're being called on to imagine, and, and you know, some might say failing to currently imagine, is a world that's not yet, not to be dramatic, but like a world that's not yet existed. So yeah. when Biden announces that he's going to Saudi Arabia, and it's some suspect in part to ask for more, for, for more energy production, well, you're just, you're, you're just using the same playbook that you've been using. You know, like yeah. if, if the if the whole goal is to just sort of go back to February or back to, you know, the, the, the sort of 2014 to February 2022 period, that's not imagining what what could be. What what place does Ukraine play in Europe after this? What place does Ukraine play in global national security after this? What does U.S. energy policy look like after this? What does German energy policy look like after this? It's much easier in some ways. It's I think it's ludicrous. But it's easier to compare yourself to Peter the Great than to compare yourself to something that's that's never been. Yeah. Katie has written an excellent piece on this called Vladimir the Great, which we will also put in. That's right. The show notes. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one. Featuring writing from our authors, including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis. Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwe screamed back, Who is dying? Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads. Published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now it is time to move on to a section that we like to call... You ask us. us. Oh my goodness, that was the best one ever. Oh, that was exciting. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's great because the question is grim. This week, our question is on the January 6th hearings. That Those are the hearings happening in Congress now about, as the name suggests, the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, 2021, and the election lies, misstatements, untruths, whatever term you like, spouted by Trump and some in his administration and some around him in the lead up to that. So our question comes to us via email from Matt, who says, hi, unlike other networks, Fox News did not air the first January 6th hearing. They also did not break for commercials, seemingly to keep people from turning the channel and actually watch the hearing. How concerned should we be that a major news network is creating an alternate reality for a significant portion of the country? Thanks, Matt. I think this is a really good question. And the answer that I would say is that it's, it's, yeah, it's very concerning because basically one would hope that this is above partisan politics. You know, there's some people who are saying, well, what will this mean for the midterms? What will this mean for Biden? It's not really the point. The point is that we had a president who claimed to have won an election that he didn't, whipped his supporters into a frenzy, and they then stormed the Capitol where, oh, by the way, we now know he apparently said maybe it wouldn't be such a bad thing if Mike Pence were hanged. According to, like, according to these hearings, he said that. So... To me, that's not about who you're voting for in a given month. That's about whether or not we will continue to have elections in which you can vote for somebody and trust that that vote is counted. If a third of the country or or, or whatever percent of the country is not getting that message, then it is going to be about partisan politics. And that's that's a, a grim reality. But Katie, what do you think? I look at this in authoritarian regimes. I've I've looked at this in China and Russia and the, the, the power of information control. And it is, we should be raising red flags, sounding alarm bells now. It could not be more important to the basic functioning of, of the country to have access to, if not unbiased information, at, at least sources of something that it, that is that is actually for, foreseeable and, and, and feasible. You know, we at least should not be withholding information from people. And I think, you know, there, there are some issues that you would hope would go above 
partisan point scoring and, and having having looked at how this plays out in authoritarian regimes, we should be very concerned. We should hold this to account. We should call out that this this behavior for, for what it is and, and demand better. You know, if you're going to brand yourself as a news organization, ignoring the hearings, refusing to broadcast them is, is not doing your viewers a service. So, you know, in short, it, it's very troubling. One other thing that I would say is that there's a lot of talk about Russian propaganda or, you know, foreign misinformation. And it's like, my friends and enemies, uh, the call is coming from inside the house. Right. Like, I, it's just clearly, I'm not saying that they're, they're, they're not related, they're not connected, but like Fox has a much bigger impact than RT or Sputnik. Jeremy, any final thoughts from you? Just very briefly, to internationalize this point further, it's not just uh, authoritarian impulses coming in from outside the United States. It's those then cycling back out of the US and influencing elections mm-hmm. and, and norms elsewhere. Looking ahead in particular to the Brazilian election later this year, where Bolsonaro is very clearly looking to apply the Trump and possibly even the January 6th playbook. So I'd say to Americans alarmed about this, it's not just alarming from the point of view of the American Republic. It's also an, an international issue of democratic norms and uh, standards. Well, anyway, thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. As ever, you can send in further You Ask Us questions at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for an interview with Anders Fo Rasmussen on NATO and Russia's war in Ukraine. If you are a regular World Review listener and you have not already subscribed, please subscribe. We have one other ask, which is to please rate us five stars. That's five stars only and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Until next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.